Well, it says 9.30, so I guess we're going to go ahead and get started. I will apologize now if I cough quite a bit. I'm still trying to get through something, but uh, nothing contagious. This, the cough seems to linger, doesn't want to go away. So I have one of those lovely tasting Fisherman's Friend cough drops in my mouth. Have you had those? Mm, they work, but they're not they're not a hauls. They don't taste like cherry or honey. <laughs> But they do work, I hope. We'll see. Want a little higher? I'm always afraid I have it too high and I'm yelling. (laughs) And I left my pen at home because my wife scolded me for thumping it and stuff while I'm teaching. She's like, I could hear it every time. So I don't have a pen, so I hope I don't need any notes or anything like that. All right, we're ambitiously going to try to get through 14 and 15. And I know it's only two chapters, but 14 has 52 verses in it. So very interesting stories, though. I've enjoyed looking through this. Uh, Look a little farther into Saul's kingship and the mistakes he's beginning to make. So again, I'm reading out of the ESV. And we will start in verse 1 of chapter 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor... Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. I'm just guessing at these. Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. He was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. These must be some kind of crags. They have names. So not an easy place to be traversing or trying to go. So Jonathan doesn't tell his father. Why? <laughs> Why do you think he wouldn't tell Saul the king that he's planning on a surprise attack? Maybe. Any ideas why he might not tell him? Well, he might have just thought his plan was reckless. How, how foolish is that? The two of you are going to go try to take on some Philistines by yourself? Or, or maybe he just didn't want to be upstaged. I don't know. I don't know. We know Saul cared about what people thought of, about him. So maybe... Maybe that's what it was. But anyway, Jonathan decided he was going to do this on his own. All right, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Uncircumcised, of course, that's just a derogatory term for what we would call, I guess, Gentiles, but... uh, Basically, he was just speaking ill of them. So Jonathan didn't really know if God was going to give him a victory at this point, but he knew he could. That's really kind of the point. Um, He's willing to offer himself up to be used by God. Um, Didn't trust his own human abilities, but he's offering himself to be used by God. Didn't know, know what God's plans were yet at this point, but he knew if God wanted it, it could happen. So Jonathan here is showing the faith that Saul, his father, should have had, um, you know, 
where he says the Lord is saving by many or by few. So he knows it doesn't really matter if he's got just him and his armor bearer or if Saul's got 600 and still not sure whether to do anything. So anyway, so just a good lesson there in his faith. All right, pick back up verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So, I'll keep reading. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. You can just hear the smugness coming off of them there. Um, And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. Yeah. (laughs) And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. So I don't know exactly what that is, but it was a certain distance. And in that short distance, they've killed uh, 20. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So the earth quaking... In, in this context, would, would indicate it's a divine intervention. God's working here. So Jonathan's kind of duking it out with them, and the armor bearer's killing them. He's knocking them down, and the armor bearer's finishing it off. So, so you know, these Philistines were going to show them a thing. You can hear that. I thought that was funny when I read that, too. But it's like, oh, they're very confident, you know, that they're just going to take these two out. Who knows what they would have done if if they had had a victory over them. But that's not the case. Uh, God's going to work through them here. Verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. I was going to stop right there. It seems like every time I teach, there's some kind of a thing in the um, uh, translation that I have to point out. Um, from what I've studied on this this particular verse, the, the ancient Greek translation, the Septuagint and some others, it reads ephod, not ark, which is a totally different thing. Uh, so it would be that they, they had the ephod. The ark was supposed to still be at Kirith Jerem until David moves it to Jerusalem. We had that in previous chapters. So it really, unless there's just something that wasn't written in Scripture about it being moved from there and then back again, uh, ephod is probably, and I think even in the New King James, if you look in the footnotes, there'll be a translation uh, footnote there that, that of what I just said, actually. But the ephod, that's something um, the priest would have would have worn, um, and it contains something called the the 
I can't even say it, Urim, Urim, and Thummim, uh, which is, again, like a casting lots kind of system. Uh, possibly like a yes, no. It could have been a little more detailed with this one. I'd seen something about gems and different colors. Um, but that would have been in the breastplate uh, that the priest would have worn. And that actually comes into play in the next few verses, would make more sense in the context. So it may not actually be the Ark of God. It may have been the ephod that contained these things that the priest had. Uh, so I'm not going to say 100%, but there, there is quite a bit of uh, commentary that suggests it should say ephod. So I'll just leave it at that. I'll pick up in verse uh, 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Paul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Uh, let me see. Okay, so where it says about Saul telling the priest to withdraw his hand, like I said, men go that they had that Urim and Thummim, 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 however you want to say it. Uh, the priest is trying to get a response from God about this. And uh, Saul kind of interrupts him in the middle of his inquiry to God and um, just basically, we got to go. <laughs> so he's not letting him finish his inquiry uh, with God, the priest that is. 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. So the Philistines are so confused, they're starting to fight each other. <laughs> There's such confusion, and, and you got to know God's hands in all this. Um, but they're so confused, they're turning on each other and fighting, not knowing who's who. Even the Israelites that uh, kind of deserted, and some of them apparently were even mercenaries. Uh, they were kind of with the Philistines, kind of. Um, they turned to fight with Israel and with Saul and Jonathan. So... The Philistines are getting beat down here, even by themselves. So God's definitely working this in this that Jonathan, his armor bearer, started because they trusted in God. Note in verse 23, who saves Israel? It's the Lord saved Israel. Not Saul. The Lord saved Israel. So the Lord is still still working for them. Okay, verse 24. Now it gets a little different. So they've had this big you know, victory here. And Saul kind of does something that changes the course of things here. Verse 24, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest... Behold, the honey was dropping, so it was so full, it was overflowing. But no one puts his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb 
and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright, which just means he was kind of refreshed, renewed. Um, So his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So the men have been fighting all this day. They're all, you know, they could use some sustenance here. No one really had eaten, and they were in need of of refreshing and renewal. But Saul kind of just rashly makes this oath. It's kind of counterproductive to what the men need to continue to fight if that's what he's going to want to do. Uh, so he's kind of forcing, forcing fasting on them at a really not great time. Uh, and why so? If you look back, he says so that he could be avenged of his enemies. He, his. You know, fasting was supposed to be more of a spiritual purpose, and he's kind of taking this away from being about God and more about himself, it seems. That's the way it seems. And, you know, he's getting a little more concerned about himself and how people view him. Uh, so he's made this rash oath. That, that's what it actually says above verse 24 for mine, Saul's rash vow. So just out of his uh, haste to, to say this, he's actually hurting his, his purpose by keeping his men from being able to be renewed and gain a little bit of strength. All right. And then let's see, the honey dripping to the ground. <coughs> Excuse me, I knew it was going to happen. <coughs> Honey dripping to the ground. It's almost like a gift from God, wouldn't it? They, they've had this hard fight, this hard battle. And then here's this honey just flowing out. They could have all used that. And it's almost like a gift from God. But Saul's oath made him afraid to eat. So they didn't know what he'd do if they ate. So so that seems, seems interesting. Uh, Jonathan, of course, doesn't know about the oath. Uh, he eats. He's refreshed. His armor bearer had been fighting, he and his armor bearer had been fighting longer than everybody else. They started this whole day. You know, they, they'd already taken out 20 people before anybody even joined in. So, you know, he was. they were in need of it too. It doesn't say if his armor bearer ate, I don't guess, but uh, Jonathan does. And then he just really disagrees with his father about this in verse 29. He's like, why in the world would my father do this? You know, it's kind of kind of counterproductive. It doesn't doesn't make much sense. So... So they're on different sides of this. Let's see. Let's go back. Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. Well, I guess so. They still still haven't gotten to eat. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, who was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So they're so hungry that as soon as they have something to plunder and kill, they just jump on it, kill it, and start eating and not going through 
you know, the practice of draining the blood. Um, the oath was over at evening, so supposedly, so presumably now they could be eating, but they didn't even wait to do it correctly. So the people were so starved, they just killed and ate before they even drained the animal's blood. And this was sinful against God. If you look in uh, Leviticus, there's probably more than one place, but Leviticus 17, 10 through 14 says, If any of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And any one also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So they knew, they knew. But this is just another consequence of Saul's oath his rash oath, because they're to the point of, I won't say starvation, it's been the day, but they've really exerted a lot of energy, haven't been allowed to eat, so they're just in haste eating. And they've and it's caused them to sin against God in this, in this way. All right, let's pick back up in verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So they're wanting to inquire of God here before they decide whether to move on and continue to flee after the Philistines. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So God's not answering. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. So Saul's wanting to continue after the fleeing Philistines and kill them all. But the priests want to inquire of God first. So then God doesn't answer. So Saul assumes that God not answering is because someone has sinned against him. Someone in all these people. He doesn't know that it was... Jonathan. Saul says they'll, they will die, so he's up the ante. We really didn't know what the oath was exactly, specifically, but at this point, when they find out who it is, he says they're going to die. So, so no one's answering Saul regarding this, and, and I think they probably all know it's probably Jonathan, but they're not, not saying anything. All right, let's pick back up in verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give give Urim. So there's that Urim and Thummim. Uh, but if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. Thummim, Thummim, Thummim. I don't know if it ends in an M or an N. I've seen both. Uh, and Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. 
Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. So <laughs> the process is beginning. If it reminds you, it's kind of similarly to how they showed that Saul had been chosen to be God's choice as king when they went through all the tribes and the people and it finally came down to, to Saul. Well, he's he's had one for the people and one for Saul and Jonathan, I bet he was surprised by that. I think he probably was just trying to exclude them and go, okay, it's y'all, and then go. But then it falls immediately on the two of them and then to Jonathan. Uh, so eventually the light does fall on Jonathan. What I find interesting here, when, when you read about Jonathan eating the honey, did it really seem like a, a sin at that time? didn't to me. Um, he didn't know. Uh, so does God find guilt in Jonathan here by not answering? Well, except except that he didn't know about that when he ate. <laughs> that that that's the I guess that's the part I'm like well, he didn't know to, that the king had even said that. So that's why I'm like, did did God see? Um, that that's just my thought on that. Um, is it only because Saul made the oath that because he was king, now if anybody did that, it was sin, even if they didn't know, right? Um, maybe. Does that sound... Anybody got any thoughts on that? Because it's kind of tricky. Yes? Yeah, I'm thinking we'll see what happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So God's using this moment to try to wake Saul up a little bit in things he's doing and saying, and you know, with the possibility of you may have just killed your son, basically. Um, so just just interesting thoughts. I don't don't have a right and wrong answer on that, but it just seems one of those tough moments that we in our small human minds can't always wrap around. So, in verse 43, Jonathan tells that he ate the honey, and he appears to accept death. Um, the law, and I can't maybe Hiram knows where, but the law apparently did allow a sacrifice for unintentional errors, things that were done without knowing that it was wrong, uh, but. Saul had jumped that over and just basically said they're going to be put to death. <laughs> so he didn't didn't even allow for that possibility. It's you did this, you die, and now it's his son. Uh, yes, because he didn't agree. Yeah. So it makes you wonder if he had known, would he would would he have done? Even if he had known about the oath, would he have eaten it anyway? Maybe. You know, and not done what the king said, like like you were pointing out. So, don't really know, but um, yeah, yeah, he he definitely does not agree with his father's decision there. Okay, let's see, verse 44, and Saul said, "Go do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die." So Saul's gonna stick to what he said, even though it's Jonathan. Uh, then the people said to Saul, "Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel?" Far from it, exclamation point. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Um, This is also a little bizarre to me. The people step in. They're not going to allow Jonathan to be killed because he worked with God in this victory over the Philistines. It doesn't say because he was unknowing of the oath. So we'll go back to that again. They didn't say, well, he didn't know. You can't kill him. That's not even, they didn't even bring that up. 
they brought up that they know this victory was because God was working with him. Remember, all this started because of Jonathan's faith that God could do this. And uh, I don't really know how they got to uh, override the, the king's, you know, it was his own. <laughs> this whole thing's messed up. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's very concerned about what the people think. So he, he listens to them here. I don't, I don't even know if that was what he's supposed to do, but it's what he did. And thankfully, because Jonathan seems to be more, I hate to say, pure of heart or whatever, but uh, he's got a better head on his shoulders, it seems, than, than Saul. Jonathan seems to be more motivated by pleasing God, and Saul is starting to fall into this trap of caring more about his position and what people think and all that. But Jonathan is spared. One way or the other, Jonathan is spared. So we'll move on from... uh, Yes. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, that's much later on, but yeah. That's also always been a little, you know, and he was okay for doing it. So, <laughs> yes, you are right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these people didn't eat. Jonathan did. Still, he didn't know. We could go on and on for that because it just seems odd to us. Um, of course, we're way removed from it. And But, yeah, yeah. So, just it, it's all being rash in his in his oath really is the is the big thing I guess to take away from that. But okay, verse forty. Well, let me do this one thing. Um, the one penalty that does result out of this, uh, they're not able to further pursue the Philistines that day because God didn't didn't let them do it. And you know we all know they become a thorn inside from days on end after that. So. Anyway, verse 47, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkashua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There, you got that? There'll be a test later. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. If you remember back when Samuel was warning the people about wanting a king, he said he'll take your 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 sons to uh, almost like a draft. He'll take them and list them to himself, and he does that. Um, so all Saul's days he fights with the Philistines. And if he had not made that one rash oath... Maybe, we don't know, maybe God would have allowed all the Philistines to be wiped out that day, but that wasn't the way it played out. So it hurts all too. All right, that's chapter 14. That was the long chapter. Maybe we can get through 15 here. I'll try to be faster. I'm afraid I'll just start coughing, though. I'm already fighting it really bad. (coughs) Excuse me. So sorry. 
verse 15, I mean chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have done. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. (coughs) So Samuel is reminding Saul of the authority behind his instructions. Remember, I'm the guy who came to you and told you what God said. Uh, These Amalekites, let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. He's reminded them of something. The Amalekites were the first to attack Israel when they left Egypt. And we'll read Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So that time has come. So... God is ready for the Amalekites to be wiped out, basically. So, let's see. Verse 3. Now go, and we're back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So the command is very clear. I mean, there's not any real misunderstanding here. This is, you know, pretty clear. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Okay, so the Amalekites are kind of like a nomadic people. They move around. They're not all in one place at the same, you know, not all of them. Uh, So this city that they're going to may have just been their main settlement. There's some debate on that, I guess. Um, But commentaries I read, most of them said this couldn't have been Every Amalekite there was, uh, but it would have been a big chunk. Uh, these Kenites that they're talking about, uh, they had settled amongst the Amalekites, and uh, they didn't want them to be destroyed as well, so they're basically giving them a heads up, we're fixing to wipe this place out, and you need to leave so we don't take you out as well. Uh, Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, he was a Kenite. Uh, Kenites have been friendly, helped Israel, and they were also nomadic people, and some suggest they were metal workers. Uh, so that's why they're being allowed to, to leave, because so, they had shown Israel kindness. And Saul defeated the Amalekites. Oh, I already said that. Verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted destruction to all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves, 
and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So, <laughs> you know, um, this victory covered as much of the Amalekite, a whole bunch of the Amalekite territory. Uh, but like I said, since they're nomadic people, Probably wasn't all of them. If you go back to 1 Samuel 27, 8 and 1 Samuel 30, verse 1, David's having conflicts with the Amalekites. So they're, they're still around. But um, King Agag is spared. What did God say back in verse 3? Wipe them all out. Everybody. Nobody. They're, they're supposed to be blotted out. Um, so they don't kill the king. And then also the things that the people found to be good, you know, things like, why are we destroying these things we can use? Uh, is my take on that. Um, they didn't do that. They were supposed to wipe everything out, everything. It's in direct violation of the command that was given in verse 3. And Saul especially and the people kind of just do what they want and think it's still pleasing somehow. Um, we'll go to verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. All night. Think about that. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. He set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> and, and Samuel gets a little smart with him here. It says, And Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So he's like, Really? You killed everything? You did everything we told you to do? And what am I hearing? Um, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have do devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. So verse 10, 11 says, God regrets making Saul king. Uh, Samuel gets angry, and he cries to the Lord all night. Uh, that's a big statement there, I think, but I don't really know what else to say about that. Uh, verse 12, Saul is, seems to be rather proud of himself at this point. Uh, he sets up a monument to whom? Not to God, to himself. So Saul sets up a monument. Verse 13, Saul either believes he has fulfilled God's command or he's being deceptive. I have to say what came to my mind was Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> You know, where they said they sold, you know, for this much, you know, and this is everything that we got when they were holding it back. You know, maybe they won't know. I, I don't know that this is directly the same, but it just came to my mind that maybe he's just hoping they don't know. But, uh, or maybe he truly believes he's done what the spirit of what God wanted. But uh, Samuel questions, you know, why he hears the sheep and oxen. Uh, and what does Saul try to do when he asks him that? He, he what? He blames the people. <laughs> they wanted it, and they meant to sacrifice to God. Uh, other thing I find interesting in that verse, Saul says, the Lord, your God, to Samuel. I don't know if that's a big thing or not, but he didn't say, you know, 
didn't own God as his God in this verse. He's basically saying, we did this for your God, Samuel. Uh, so he's, he's kind of trying to take the heat off himself. So verse 17, Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, you are not the head of the tribe of Israel. Are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? And he's trying to remind him that he didn't think, you know, he was able to be king because of who, you know, how small he was in uh, standing. The Lord anointed you king over the over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, "Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed." Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen. Here he goes again, the people. The best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, and there's several quotes here in these next three verses that are Old Testament. As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Okay, there's a couple of things to unpack there. So, verse 22, the Lord delights in what? Obedience. 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 Not partial obedience, (laughs) which is what Saul has done. Not partial obedience. We cannot pick and choose, you know, what parts we want to obey as if we know better than God. You know, if God says it, he knows. Uh, so that's kind of what's going on here, I guess. That's probably something we do sometimes. don't even know we're doing it. Um, and this is one reason to me, I think, why we have so many denominations instead of one church. You know, we try to worship God the way maybe... We want to, not just trying to make sure we're doing it the way it's commanded. Um, just a side thought. That's just something I've, I've always marveled at how many different ways we've come up with to, to worship God. But uh, similar thinking. So again, in 24-25, Saul blames the people. Uh, he appears to want Samuel to come with him. I'm thinking more for visible support in front of the people. Maybe save a little face. Uh, this comes up again in verse 30, and it seems a little more apparent that that may be, may be the thing. So, okay, let's pick up in verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you from this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Who's the neighbor? Who's he talking about? It's David. It's David. That's who's going to replace him. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man 
that he should have regret. I think New King James says strength of Israel, but those are both referring to God, obviously. Uh, Will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. He's thinking, Enough time's passed. They were going to kill me. They'd have done it by now. Uh, and Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Ooh. Um, then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So here's that regret word again. Um, it, it's, it's interesting, because in one verse it says that he will not have regret, but then down here it says he does regret um, I think in, in one sense, I think New King James in one of those verses says will not relent, not regret. But I think in that context, it's more, he's not going to change his decision. He's not changing his mind. Uh, and in these others, it's more of a, a, a sense of sorrow, more than, you know, that he's more sorry about it and he kind of feels with it. Uh, so I think it's not really a it's not a contradiction there. It's really maybe a poorly you know way of translating it into our words. But uh, I think in one sense he's just sorrowful about it, and then the other it means I'm not changing my mind on it. Um, not going to change my mind. So Samuel carries out the divine judgment Saul was supposed to do. So Samuel had to take care of of. You would think the king might be the first one that should have been destroyed, uh, you know, of, of the annihilation. He's the one in charge of everything. He's the one, you know, so for some reason they kept him. But Samuel takes care of business there. So Samuel never goes to visit Saul. I know it says he never sees him again, but I think, uh, does Saul not seek him out at some point uh, later on? But, but basically Samuel's withdrawing from him withdrawing his visible support so that the people realize that Samuel and God are pretty much done with Saul as king. And it's just the beginning of the end there. So sad, sad commentary there, but uh, Saul seems to have uh, drifted into worrying more about his kingship and how he's viewed than pleasing God. So anyway, we did barely get through chapter 15, so... Any thoughts before the bell rings here in a minute? <laughs> nope. That's pretty straightforward, but a lot you can pull out of that, and some you can even apply to right now. So thank you for your attention. I guess the bell will ring here in just a second. So thank you. <laughs>